Welcome to Curious Tales of the Talmud 2, Lesson 2. What a mouthful. Oh my gosh. Talk about a complicated name of a, of a, of a class. All right, Richard is joining. Jay, Richard is joining as we speak. It's going to happen. He's going to pop up in a minute. All right, this is Curious Tales of the Talmud 2, Lesson number 2, and here we begin. So, the story goes, the story goes, Richard, welcome. Great to have you here. Here's the story. There's a rabbi who got sick. He had a pretty bad case of the flu. And this rabbi actually ended up bedridden for a little while. Well, the president of the board, the president of the board decides to visit the rabbi. And he says the following, Rabbi, I have good news and I have bad news. The rabbi says, fire away. He says, the good news is, on behalf of the board, I wish you a speedy recovery. The rabbi says, what's the bad news? The bad news is the vote was 5-4. Cherry, you got it? Nah, it didn't work. All right. They're supposed to get like the rim shot. Anyway, that's a joke. Always it would be for sure a 9-0 uh, vote to wish the rabbi a refuge. But here's the point. We're going to talk about debates and votes. So here's how we connected with last week. Last week we spoke about, we explored the great debate between the Talmudic sage Rabbi Yoshua and the 60 elders of Athens. And in the process, we discovered some incredible lessons regarding the value of human life and the Jewish perspective on suffering, amongst other um, important topics. This week, we head back to the ancient land of Israel to look at a debate that happens within the halls of the great Talmudic Academy. A debate that occurred between the very same Rabbi Yehoshua, the same rabbi that debated the Athenian um, um, philosophers, the same Rabbi Yehoshua, today will be locked into battle debate with Rabbi Eliezer. And what is the debate about? It's about an oven. It's about an oven. Okay? As we'll see soon, the debate about the oven quickly escalates, quickly turns supernatural. Miracles are performed to try to sway the final decision. But in the ultimate analysis, these miracles are to no avail. We're going to be laying out the story, pulling it apart with questions, and then putting it back together with a brand new perspective. That's what we try to do. Lay it out there, rip it apart, shred it with questions and analysis, and then put it back together in an unbelievably profound way. And we'll discover through the process of our exploration tonight that this Talmudic debate is at the heart of so many important debates between people and ideologies it drives human behavior, but also why sometimes we don't get along with each other. And its conclusion, the conclusion of the story is profoundly instructive to all of us. We're going to be learning some very practical lessons about life and personalities and, uh, and, and relationships. And in the process, we'll also get a behind-the-scenes look at how Jewish law is ultimately adjudicated. How, does, how do we arrive at what is what we call halacha Jewish law. All right, so that's all by the way of introduction. Let's begin. Let me take you back in time 
travel back with me in 1900 years. As you know, the temple was destroyed, the second holy temple was destroyed in the year 69 of the Common Era. The story we're about to tell takes place just a few decades after the destruction of the temple. The story that we told last week took place a few decades after this story. So this is actually earlier. Today's story is actually earlier in history than the one we we explored last week. So this takes place a few decades after the destruction of the Holy Temple. But here's what what I need to tell you. And I may have mentioned this last week, but it's really important for this week's class. As Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans, the Romans were a very powerful nation. They conquered huge swaths of land. Rome, Rome, the Roman army, cut off Jerusalem entirely. They besieged the city. But what was going on inside was equally as nefarious. You see, on the inside, there were a group of what we call zealots who, who maintained that we were not, Jews were not allowed to to um, reconcile or to find any conciliation at all with the Roman Roman army, that they had a fight to the death. That was the zealots. The zealots, as the name suggests, they were all about fighting and regaining autonomy and not giving it to the Romans. And so they would not let anybody out of Jerusalem with the fear that they might negotiate with Rome. They did not want anybody negotiating. Does that make sense, what what I'm sharing with you? Yes? The zealots wanted everyone to fight, not to negotiate. No diplomacy, only, only, uh, only war. Okay. There was a rabbi. His name, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the leading scholars of the time, one of the leading rabbis of the time. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai knew, and he felt very strongly, that the zealots were going to mess things up. It was not good for the Jews. The Jewish zealots were not, is not a good approach. He knew he must get out of Jerusalem and negotiate with the Roman general. But, how, but you couldn't get out of the city. There were guards, Jewish guards, killing anybody that tried to escape. It's crazy. But that, that's what was going on. So he faked his own death. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai climbed into a coffin. And he had... His students put out the word that he had passed away and they had to bury him. They were going to take him out of the city to bury him. Who was the Aaron? Who who was the, the ark, not the ark, the coffin carried by? Two students, Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer. Two students, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer. They carried the coffin. They got to the, the gates of Jerusalem. The Jewish zealot said, what is this? It's a funeral. It's a, it's a levaya. It's a, we're, we're transporting the coffin out of the city for burial. He said, we don't believe you. We're going to take our spears and spear the, um, put the spears through the, um, through the coffin. The student said very quickly, Rabbi Shur and Rabbi Leazar said, it's not right. What the, you, you want to be said about you that you put a spear through the holy body of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai? Come on. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's not nice. So indeed, they let it go. They let the coffin go out, and out once they got outside of the city, he popped out of the coffin. He negotiated with the Roman uh, general turned emperor Vespasian, and he had one request. The general said, "What would you grant? I give you one request." And he said, 
give me Yavne. Actually, he had a few requests, but one of them was, give me Yavne v'chachomel. Give me Yavne, the city Yavne. Don't destroy that city and allow it to, to, to become the place where Torah is studied. And the Roman general said yes. He knew he couldn't ask for the temple not to be destroyed. That was already going to happen. He asked at least for one city from where Torah and Judaism could be rebuilt and could pivot without a temple, pivot into a new, a new era. So that's what happened. So the story, the debate we're going to learn tonight, listen to this, takes place in Yavne, in the academy that Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai built after the temple's destruction. And the debate occurs between the two students that held the coffin, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer. So far, so good. You with me on the story in the background? Good. Look, we could have just started the story, but we would miss out on all the richness and all the, all the depth of the story. So we have, Rabbi, we have a great rabbi, secures Yavne, smuggles himself out of, out of the city with two students. Later on, a few decades later, the rabbi has, passed away, has actually passed away now. Rabbi, Shur, Rabbi Yochum Zakeh is actually no longer with us. Two students are debating in the Talmud calls. What's the debate? About an oven. Yeah, about an oven. What's the debate? Here we go. Should it be a 30-inch or 36-inch? Yeah? Should it be um, gas or electric? No, that's not the debate. A wolf or a... Yeah, that's not the debate. Debate is much, 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 much more interesting. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's jump in. Let's get this party started. Okay, the great debate. This comes from the Talmud Tractate Bava Metzia 59A and B, as you can see here. I'm going to read this, the case and I'll, and I'll explain it. I may show you a visual or two as well. It was taught in a Mishnah. The Talmud says the Mishnah taught. If an oven is constructed out of layers of clay coils and sand is placed between each layer, Rabbi Eliezer declares the oven, that oven to be permanently pure while the sages declare it to be susceptible to ritual impurity. And the oven in discussion is the Achnai oven. The Achnai oven. Now you're probably wondering, number one, what's a clay coil oven that's comprised with, uh, of layers with sand in between? What does it mean that one rabbi says it's permanently pure, the other one says it's susceptible to ritual impurity? What's the Achnai? What is going on here? What, how did we end up on a Thursday night talking about this bizarre case? I don't even know what's going on. What kind of oven? What does it mean impure? All right, so let me explain. That's why I'm here. You think I'm here just, uh, just to tell bad jokes? I mean that too. I'm here to explain what's going on. Here's what Jewish law says. And this is really more pertinent at the time when the temple stood. And remember, this was just a few decades after the temple, so they were still discussing, you know, laws related to purity and ritual impurity. Today, it's not, it's not as uh, relevant because we don't have a temple yet, until Mashiach. So the discussion was like this. The law is that um, if a person is in a state of ritual impurity, for example, how, what, what is ritual impurity anyway? Let, let me take a step back with that. Ritual impurity means when a person comes in contact with something that is ritually impure. What's an example of ritual impurity? A dead body. So if somebody is, for example, in a house under the same roof of someone who passes away, for example, if you step into a hospital 
And the assumption is that some, somewhere in the hospital there is a person that's no longer alive, a dead body in the hospital under the roof. And you're in the same building. You become ritually impure. What does that mean? Well, in the times of the temple, it was very important. It was very, very meaningful. You could not go to the Temple Mount in a state of ritual impurity. You could not go to the temple, to the Holy Temple, to the Temple Mount in that state. You would have to become purified. And that's a whole process. Depending on, on which level of impurity you got, that would be a, there would be a specific purification process. You also couldn't eat certain things. Certain types of foods you couldn't eat in a state of ritual impurity. So in, in Jewish law, there's a lot of discussion about how ritual impurity is transmitted from one entity to another entity. So I gave you a simple example of, uh, I mean, a, a, a sad example, but where a person passes away under the same roof as you, and then, or somebody's no longer alive under that same roof, then you're, you're ritually impure. But there are other ways to become ritually impure. And one way is if... If um, there's like a few degrees of separation, right? So if something touches something impure and then you touch it, there's like, it, it could go a few generations. Not like forever, because then there's, everyone's impure at some point. But it can go a few, a few generations. So the question is, on the, the question on the table is about this oven. There was an oven that was constructed in a unique way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it in a second. So an oven that's, that's uh, um, constructed in a very unique way. And the question is, could that oven ever become ritually impure? Because the, the law is that for something to become ritually impure, it has to, for an object, not a person, for an object to become ritually impure, it has to be a whole object. If it's a broken object, then it doesn't become impure. So I'll give you an example. If you have a bowl, like a serving bowl, like a salad bowl, like a nice, you know, clay or earthenware, glass, whatever it is, um, serving bowl, um, and something impure enters inside of it, the bowl becomes impure. But that's only if the bowl is intact. What if the bowl shattered? What, ha what happens if you drop the bowl? And now it's in pieces on the ground, and something impure falls on one of those pieces. The pieces don't become impure. Why? Because only a whole vessel, a vessel that's whole, that has its integrity, can become possibly impure. Anything that's broken can't become impure. Why? Too complicated to explain right now, but that's the, that's the key idea. If it's whole, it can become impure. It doesn't mean that it's impure. It could become impure. If it's, not, if it's broken, it cannot become impure. Does that make sense? Yes, so far? Yeah, sort of? Okay. The question was about this oven. What's the status of the oven? What's the status of the oven? It's an oven that's made of different coils. Different layers of clay separated by sand. I actually have with me a visual that I want to share with you, so I'm going to share my screen. Hold on one second. Let me first pull it up on my side. Give me a moment, please. Here we go. Okay. Let's see if this works, my friends. Bam, ba -dam. Can you guys see this? Did the, did the Achnai oven show up? Yes? Thumbs up if you can see that, yeah? Okay, coil, sand, coil, sand, coil, sand, top, and plastered on the outside. That's what the Achnai oven looked like. Yeah, very different from the, uh, the ovens of our, of our times, but that's what the oven looked like. Again, I'll show you again. If we can go back here, right? 
There we go. One layer of clay with sand, clay, sand, clay, sand, covered and plastered. So there are two opinions. Rabbi Eliezer says it's always pure, which it can never become impure. You know why? Because it's a broken oven. It's not an oven. It's broken pieces. That's how he defines the oven. Rabbi Yeshua and the sages say, no, it's susceptible to ritual impurity. It's an oven. So again, the question is, do you view this, this, this skeleton as being an oven or broken pieces? Do you look at the, to the end result, which is that it looks like an oven? Or do you look at the layers and say, look, the layers are broken? You don't have a whole unit. You have one layer, another layer, another layer, separated by sand. It's not, uh, it's not an oven. It's not an oven. It's, it's different layers. That's the question. Rabbi Yezer says it's not an oven. It's not an oven. It's broken. And if it's broken, it can't become impure. The rabbis, Rabbi Yeshua said, it can become impure. It's an oven. So literally the debate about the oven was, is it an oven or is it not an oven? Is it an oven or is it a broken oven? Okay, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to talk to you guys. Does the debate make sense? Yes? Yes? Simple. Yeah? I have a question, Rabbi. Yeah, Donna, jump in. So I understand there could be different opinions, but, I mean, there has to be a final arbiter, arbiter to decide if it's a mitzvah or not. Good, 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 good. Hold on. Hold on. The whole class is going to talk about how we get from debate to resolution. The second half of the story is where things get a little bit crazy. Crazy in a good way. But before we get there, I don't want to gloss, I want to make sure we got the case of the oven. Again, the oven, at the end of the day, functions like an oven, but it's not built like a normal oven. It's not built out of one piece. It's built with pieces and, and sand in between. It's like a makeshift oven. It's like um, an Ikea oven. Like you got to build it together. It's like st you know, stuff in it. You know, Ikea opened the restaurant. You know, you know about this? Yeah? Yeah, you go there, you order a steak, and they give you a raw piece of meat and a frying pan. They're like, you make it yourself. That's a joke. Ikea, all right. Guys, right? Who's with me? All right, next. So here's the point. Here's the point. The oven is layers. One rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, says, it's not an oven, it's not, it's not whole, so it can never become impure, because only something whole can become impure, theoretically. It's, it's broken. Basically, he says it's broken. And the other rabbis say it's whole. Now, here's what happens. The debate is raging in the Yavne Talmudic Academy, right? YTA, the Yavne Talmudic Academy, right? This is going on. I made up that acronym. You don't, don't Google it. So um, the rest of the story goes like this. Text 1B. On that day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forth every imaginal argument to prove that the Achnai oven is broken. It's not subject to ritual defilement. But the sages, the majority of the others, did not accept his arguments. Listen to what happened next. Said Rabbi Eliezer, if the halacha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was uprooted and moved a distance of 100 cubits, 150 feet. Others say 400 cubits, 600 feet. In other words, a tree jumps. No proof can be brought from a carob tree, they retorted. 
Again, Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the halach is, agrees with me, if the law agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water began to flow backward. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. Again, he urged, if the halacha agrees with me, let the walls of the academy prove it. Whereupon the walls began to fall, inclined to fall. They started, they started leaning in. But Rabbi Yeshua, his colleague, rebuked the walls, saying, scholars are engaged in halachic dispute. What right do you have, have you to interfere? Rabbi Yeshua screams at the walls of the, of the academy in Yavne. The walls did not cave in completely in deference to Rabbi Yeshua, nor did they resume their upright position in deference to Rabbi Yezer. And they are still standing thus inclined. The Talmud says, go to Yavne. The walls are still leaning. And we call this the Leaning Tower of Yavne. Joking, the Leaning Academy of Yavne apparently was a thing. Again, Rabbi Yezer said to them, if the Halacha agrees with me, let the heaven prove it. Thereupon a heavenly voice proclaimed, Why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer? The halacha follows his opinion on all matters. But Rabbi Yeshua rose to his feet and exclaimed, Again, his colleague, his colleague Rabbi Yeshua, the fellow holder of his rabbis, of, of their teacher's coffin, he rises to his feet and he says, The Torah is not in heaven. That's what the Torah says. Lo bashamayim, it's not in heaven. Which means that we pay no attention to a heavenly voice. Rather, we adjudicate matters in accordance with the majority opinion right here on earth. For you, God, have already written in the Torah after the majority must one incline. In my Bar Mitzvah Torah portion, it says, Achare Rabbim Lahatos, you follow the majority. On that day, they gathered all the things that Rabbi Eliezer had declared pure and burned them. They then took a vote, and when Rabbi Eliezer refused to accept the majority ruling, they excommunicated him. They banned him from the academy. My friends, this is one of the most dramatic debates amongst the Talmudic scholars that you will ever read in any tractate, on any page. This is, I'm pretty sure, the most dramatic debate in the Talmud. You find another debate in the Talmud where the rabbi brings a carob tree that jumps a stream that flows backwards, walls that incline, a heavenly voice, and the rabbis say, we don't care, it doesn't matter, we're taking a vote. And the other rabbi doesn't concede to the vote. And what do they do? They excommunicate him. This was not just any random individual. This was the great Rabbi Eliezer of Harkonnes, the great Rabbi Eliezer. They excommunicated, he remained excommunicated to the last day of his life. It's a sad story, it's a dramatic story, it's an unbelievable story, and, and, and probably first and foremost, it's a story that demands clarification. It begs to be explained further, because there's so much that doesn't make much sense. I wanna start with three questions. I'm sure you have your own questions, I have three questions, okay? Question, you know what? One second, let me stop. Let me ask you, what are your questions on the story? Any questions you might have in the story? I can't promise we'll answer them, but I want to hear what you guys have to say about the story. New questions, jump in. Open mic. Jump in, jump in. You're good, Richard. Yeah, yeah. And I have a question. It makes sense to me. That's when the ruling 
That's when they decided that no details of the story are uh, a little bit. An oven or not an oven? I mean, was, I mean is, were ovens always made like that in, that in those days? In that case, it would be a whole oven. Okay. Question. But my my comment is that okay, so that's that's where they decided that the tour is to be decided here. Question here. Okay, if you want to question, I work with the ovens like that all the time. That's okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jerry, jump in. So two things. This seems like majority rule with no guidelines is tyranny. I mean, there got to be there's got to be some protection from the minority. And and it this, you know, if if you're not listening to if you're not observing miraculous occurrences. I, you know, you're giving no no status to miraculous occurrences. Right. Trees hopping, walls collapsing, voices from from heaven. I, you'd think somebody would go. Maybe we ought to listen to this. Good, good, good. I, I hear the question. Right. How come the majority is just blind majority, and not fully? okay? Good. Any other questions? Excellent. Any other questions? Yeah, Richard. So I, I don't understand the, the logic. It would seem to me that there's there, there's long-standing precedent that goes all the way back to to even the uh, the Exodus uh, when when the when the Mishkan was 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 built. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the Ark of the Tabernacle was was um, made up of, of pieces uh, of a lot of pieces. Was was it not perpetually holy? Uh, would would it become uh, 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 ritually impure, or would it always be pure? Good, good question. Was do we consider all things that are comprised of different pieces to be not not to not have integrity? Good, good question. Good. What else? Yeah, more questions, Donna. What does excommunicated mean in our world? Um, it means. First and foremost, that he was not allowed in the academy. His uh, opinions weren't uh, consulted. He didn't have a say in any rabbinic votes. His place was removed. Of, his place of prominence was removed within the community. I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff. Someone who's really excommunicated doesn't count for a minion. If you have ten people, including that person, they don't count for a minion. That's how severe excommunication cherem is. That's that. It's pretty pretty serious. They're invisible to the community. It's a pretty pretty serious thing. Um, I'll tell you my questions. I have three questions. Question number one, why didn't they listen to the heavenly voice? Why didn't they listen to the miracles? A carob tree, this is what Jerry asked, right? Carob tree is jumping, streams are going backwards, um, walls are falling, heavenly voices are proclaiming, all for the other side. So wouldn't you say, you know what? Maybe the guy's right. No, They're, they stand firm, they're obstinate, they say, no, this is our opinion, we're not changing. Why? That's question one. Question number two on the other side. If Torah does actually say you follow the majority, then how come Rabbi Eliezer, after they took the vote, why didn't he concede to the majority? By the way, let me explain. Every time there was a debate, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, you know, Abaya, Rava, whatever, who, all the great Talmudic scholars, whenever there was a debate, the protocol was Everyone had a chance to, 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 to convince, to try to convince everyone. They took a vote, ultimately, majority. And the other side, the minority, said, 
All right, that's the halacha. And they also did like the other guy. Like, when, if that case were to occur, you wouldn't say, well, my opinion is different and, and splinter Judaism. Understand what I'm saying here? You wouldn't have two Judaisms. You know, you could follow the majority rabbis. We live in a world in which, yeah, this all, you know, it's like Ashkenazi, Sephardi. It's like everyone's got their own thing. But back in the day, there was a, 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 a singular path when it came to halacha. Certainly. Consensus. Consensus. And the way it worked was, if they voted, whoever was in the minority ultimately conceded to the consensus. What's happening here is that Rebbe Eliezer says, I don't care. I know we voted. Doesn't matter. I'm not giving in this time. So now the question is on him. Question two is, why didn't he concede to the majority? So again, question one is, how come they didn't, how, why weren't they impressed by the miracles and by the heavenly voice? That's on them. On him is the question, on Rebbe Yezer, the question is, how come he didn't concede to the majority? That's my second question. Question number three is, why was there such a fuss about an oven? All of this about an oven? I mean, there's so many debates in the Talmud. This never blew up. Only about this oven, it blows up like this? Why was the oven such a hot issue? I know what you're thinking. It's an oven, right? Anyway, but why is the oven such like a... Such a, you know, wild, uh, why did it give rise to such wild controversy? Let me share my screen for a second. Let's see how um, Susan Handelman, Dr. Susan Handelman, um, expresses this. Of all possible issues on heaven and earth over which the sages might have had such a wrenching and cataclysmic debate, how does a mundane oven become the center of the storm? And what is the relation of the technical legal status of the small oven to the larger religious, pedagogical, and sociological issues at play in this tale? Why have the scores of disputes recorded in the Mishnah Talmud between Rabbi Yezer and his colleagues from the first page of the Talmud onwards, Brachot 2a, why is this the particular issue through which the crisis occurs? Isn't the reaction disproportionate to the case in question? It's just an oven. Practically speaking, the implication of the debate was that those who followed the sage's view would not be able to eat or use any of the food or vessels from a type of oven under Rebbe Yezer's supervision. In other words, since Rebbe Yezer, let me just explain what she wrote there. Since Rebbe Yezer never changed his opinion, that means whenever there was an Achnaya oven and food that came out of that oven that was under the jurisdiction of Rebbe Yezer, you always could suspect that maybe it's impure, but he rules it always, imp- always pure because it's broken. And then we have a, a, a thing. So that's why they burned all of this, the, the, the ritual items that came from his oven or those types of ovens under his supervision. So they would fear, why would they, why would they um, not be able to eat? Because they would fear that these foods could have acquired tumma ritual impurity and not been purified and would therefore be forbidden back inside. But is this a matter of cosmic importance? Okay, so it had a pra- practical ramification, the fact that he didn't concede to the majority. But is it such a big deal? We're still off with our question. Why does Rebbe Yezer so stubbornly insist on a stance? And why does even heaven agree with him, but his colleagues nevertheless refuse? And not only refuse, but they also burn all the objects he has declared pure and ostracized him. What snake in the garden causes this expulsion and its terrible consequences? Why is this such a big deal? Okay. So I'm going to summarize the three questions. Three questions in 15 seconds. Why didn't the sages reconsider after seeing the miracles? Why did Rebbe Yezer not give in to the majority? And why such a big deal about an oven?
you know by now, what we're going to do is completely take apart the story, put it back together again in a magnificent way. In a way that's truly mind-blowing, enlightening, and, and, and just shares so much depth about the human experience and about life itself. But before we do that, to really eviscerate this story, I need to ask a few more questions. If you recall in the story, what happens when Rabbi Eliezer sees that his majority colleagues, the majority of his colleagues, are not agreeing with him? What does he do? He summons miracles. How many miracles does he summon? How many? The carob tree, the stream of water, and the walls. Now, after that, the heavenly voice on its own said, Hey, guys! Stop! He's right! So that's the fourth miracle, but that's not what he summoned. He summoned three miracles. The question is why? Why three miracles? Why? What, 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 does miracle, what, what do miracles have to do with it anyway? Why pull out any miracles? Why three miracles? This was a debate of an academic debate, a scholarly debate, a halachic Jewish legal debate. This is not an episode of Yavna's Got Talent. Hey guys, look what I can do. I can make a tree jump. I can make a stream go backwards. I can make walls fall. What is this? Like, uh, yeah. So that's not a show. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a scholarly debate. So why any miracles? And if he wanted to bring some miracle as support for his opinion, why three, not one? Like I said a moment ago. And why do the sages respond so cryptically? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I mean. Check, check the screen for a second. Watch as they pull up the sages' response. Look what happens after the carob tree. Right? The carob tree jumps 100 or 400 cubits. So what do, they, what do the rabbis say? No proof can be brought from a carob tree. That's a, that's a weird response. Why didn't they say simply miracles are irrelevant in a conversation about halacha? Why didn't they say miracles don't mean anything? Why did they say no proof can be brought from a carob tree? And why did they then say no proof can be brought from a stream of water? Why did they specify the specific type of miracle that happened? Why don't they just say miracles don't count? Miracles don't matter in, a, in an academic debate. Don't show me hocus pocus. Let's continue the dialogue. Why did they say that? Why did they talk about carob trees and water? So I want to share with you an absolutely eye-opening explanation given by the great Vilna Gaon, the great genius of Vilna, one of the great Talmudic scholars of the last several centuries. The Vilna Gaon says that here's what happened. Rabbi Eliezer had a different opinion than his colleagues. And at first, he tried to explain rationally. He tried to rationalize his opinion. He said, guys, listen, let me explain why the oven is not an oven. It's broken. It can't become impure. It's broken. It's different pieces. He tried to explain his position based on other sources, whatever. He tried to explain his position. When he realized that they weren't understanding him, they didn't get his position. So he said to them like this. I see that it's not clicking for you guys, but I want you to take a leap of faith and trust me that I know what I'm talking about. In other words, even if you don't understand my position, trust my scholarship 
and agree with me based on my high caliber of learning. And to demonstrate or to support that assertion, he brings the carob tree, the water, and the walls. The carob tree. Sign number one that you should trust Rebbe Eliezer. What's the carob tree? I'm explaining now the three items, the three miracle items, why he specifically brought those miracles, and why it would support his argument, guys, trust me, even if you don't understand me, trust me. Why? What's a carob tree? A carob tree is known, the carob is known for being a food of poverty and austerity. In other words, it's a, it's a food that is not, uh, you're not going to find it in an expensive restaurant. It's a simple, basic food. Rabbi Eliezer was indicating through this sign that his was a life of material, minim, uh, um, he was a minimalist, uh, materially. He was very austere. He had a lot of simplicity in his life. And that is the way to acquire Torah. Living a simple life is a way to acquire Torah. Let me show you the screen. It says in Pirkei Avot the following, text number three. Kachi darka shal Torah, this is the way to acquire Torah. Bread with salt you shall eat, water in small measure you shall drink, and upon the ground you shall sleep. In other words, simple. A life of deprivation you shall lead while you toil in the study of Torah. What helps a person study and acquire Torah? It's, it's tuning, tur turning down right the, uh, the gauge on materialism, on physical indulgences. Bread with salt, water, a little water, and sleeping on the ground. No big deal. That doesn't mean literally those three things. It means living a more austere life, austere lifestyle. Rabbi Eliezer was telling his colleagues, guys, I live a simple life. All I do is study Torah. Trust me, I got this right. Even if you don't understand, I got this right. The Talmud elsewhere tells the story of Rabbi Eliezer. This is probably a story that you don't know. Rabbi Eliezer grew up in a very wealthy household. His father was exceedingly wealthy. As a young man, he told his father he wishes to study Torah. He wants to go to yeshiva. His father said, not happening, not happening. I'll ta I'm taking care of you, you'll stay here, and, and that's it, you'll live a good life. He said, I want to study Torah. He said to him, if you go to yeshiva, I will cut you out. I will cut you off. That's it. Nothing. No money. You'll have nothing. You know what Rabbi Eliezer said? So be it. He walked away from material wealth. He walked away from material security for one thing, to study Torah. So that's why he brings, according to the Vilna Gon, that's why he brings the sign of the carob tree, saying, guys, I know it's not clicking intellectually, but trust me. Trust me that I, I know what I'm talking about. After all, I eat carobs, right? The carob tree. Number two. Second sign was the sign of, what was it? After the carob tree, it was? Water. Water. What's the symbolism of water? Water symbolizes humility, being humble, specifically with regard to Torah study. Let me share the next text with you about water. Text number four. The Talmud says, 
Why are the words of Torah likened to water as in the verse from Isaiah, Ho, all who are thirsty, go to the water. It says in Isaiah, whoever's thirsty, go to water. Trust me, Isaiah wasn't telling you, <coughs> go grab a, uh, a black raspberry LaCroix if you're, if you're coughing. I mean, that's obvious, right? We know that. At least I know that. You don't need Isaiah for that. The thirsty drink water, obviously. It's a reference to Torah. If you're thirsty spiritually, if your life is, if you're looking for meaning in your life, if you're yearning for some meaning, doesn't mean you should buy a sports car, right? Midlife crisis, don't buy a sports car. Don't quit your job. Study Torah. That's the way to go. Study Torah. It's time to study something a little bit deeper. That's what water is. So why is Torah likened to water? This teaches us as the Talmud that just as water flows from a higher place to a lower one, so too the words of Torah are retained only by one who is humble. Just like water goes down, Torah flows, so to speak, to the one who is humble. Thus, Rabbi Eliezer was testifying about himself. He's like, guys, trust me. Trust me. I live a simple life. And I'm humble. I know that sounds like the opposite of humility to say, look, guys, I'm, I'm humble, but sometimes you got to just speak the truth. I mean, you got to own it. You got to own your humility also. It's, guys, I'm humble. Listen to me. I got this right. What's the third sign? Help me out, guys. What's the third sign? So the carob tree jumped, the water went backwards, and what happened, number three? The walls, the walls leaned in. What does that represent? The walls of the academy of Yavne? It represents clocking in the hours in the, in the academy. He says, guys, you know I come in the first guy in the morning and I'm the last guy to leave. I clock the most hours. These walls see me more than any one of you guys. That's the reality, right? That's, that's the truth. Let's look at uh, text 5. The Talmud says elsewhere, by whom is scholarship to be found? By those who come to the study hall early in the morning and stay late into the night. In other words, if you want to master Torah, you got to put in the hours. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. So what he was indicating to his colleagues is, guys, listen. Austerity, humility, and diligence. I got all three. Even if you don't understand my position, concede to my position that I am correct in this debate. That's why they said, to him. They didn't say miracles don't count. What they said was no proof could be brought from a carob tree. Even though you're very um, minimalistic, that's not going to sway us. Even though you're humble, that's not going to sway us. Even though you put in more hours than all of us, still not going to sway us. We're not going to give in just because you're telling us to if we don't understand your position, if we don't agree to your position intellectually. Does that make sense? They were not willing, the other sages were not willing to suspend their rationale just because he said, trust me. Yes? You with me? Yes? Yes? No? Trust me? Don't trust me? Yes? Everyone with me? Okay. And the truth is, Rabbi Eliezer was right. He was right. There was no greater scholar in his era that, than, than him. He was right. How do I know this? How do I, how do I know that Rabbi Eliezer was the greatest of his colleagues? He was right. When he said, guys, please concede to me, I have this right. You know that I'm right. I know that he, that he was the greatest scholar of his era. Who said? 
his teacher. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the rabbi who smuggled himself out of the city, spoke to Vespasian, got Yavna as the city. The, 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 their teacher, the teacher of Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Yeshua and the others, he said himself the following. Check it out for yourself, black and white. It's in Pirkei Avot. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai used to say, that's the rabbi, if all the sages of Israel, all the sages of Israel, were on one pan of a balanced scale and Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanos was on the other, he would outweigh them all. It's not me saying that. It's not him saying that. It's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, their teacher, their beloved teacher. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, you put all the scholars on one side of the balance scale and Rabbi Eliezer on the other side and he's stronger than every one of them put together. That's how brilliant he was. You know how brilliant he was? He was so brilliant, they couldn't understand him. They couldn't understand his logic. He was so brilliant. You know, like geniuses that are ahead of their times? Yeah, you have this with art, right? There are artists that in their lifetime, no one bought the art. Everyone's like, that guy's art, pfft, Meshuggah. Yeah, although speaking of Meshuggah art, you, you heard about the guy who duct taped a banana to the wall? That was a thing. Yeah, this was a thing. Yes, no? All right, you guys have to look at the news a little bit more. I'm kidding. Anyway, here's the point. Um, Rebbe Eliezer was the brightest of the bunch, so bright that they didn't understand him. So when it came to this dispute, he said, guys, I'm right. We don't understand. We have our own position. Guys, trust me. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They don't relent. They don't provide. Notice, they don't provide rejoinders for his argument. They don't say... You're not so austere, you're not so humble, you're not so studious, you're not so great, you're not so wise. They don't say that. All they say is that all of your points, although they might be true, they're inadmissible into the conversation. We're having a vote on halacha. And the way the vote on Jewish law works is you take a vote and what the scholars believe to be correct, you vote, the majority wins, and that's it. You're the smartest, you're the brightest, sure. Even God, even heaven agrees, sure. But Torah's not in heaven, Torah's here. It's inadmissible. Inadmissible, but why? Why is it inadmissible? Why isn't he right? If he's the smartest, why shouldn't they concede? Why? So to understand this, we need to go deeper. But before we do that, let me check in with you guys. Any questions? Any questions on what we've talk, talked about thus far? Yes? Questions? Is everything clear? Like everything, all the details are lining up so far? Yes? Okay. So to understand why, why it is that the sages didn't ultimately concede... If the rabbi was really the smartest, Rabbi Eliezer was the smartest, and to understand this, we need to look at the characters involved. Rabbi Eliezer on one side, and Rabbi Yeshua on the other side. It wasn't just Rabbi Yeshua, it was all the other sages. But Rabbi Yeshua was the spokesperson for all the other sages. He was the one that told the walls, don't move. He was the one that told the voice in heaven, we don't listen to you. It was Rabbi Yeshua that spoke on behalf of the other sages. He was the leading scholar on the other side. So let's look at these two personalities. And when we look closely, we find something that is actually amazing. 
You see, years earlier, years earlier, decades earlier, the same Rabbi Yehoshua was on the other side of the argument. Not about the oven, but in, a, but in, a, in another case. He was on the minority opinion. And ultimately, he reacted differently than Rabbi Eliezer because he relented to the majority opinion even though he believed he was right. Are you with me on what I'm, what I'm saying now? Turns out years earlier, Rabbi Yoshua was on the other side, the losing side of a vote. But in his case, he ultimately conceded and relented to the majority. So here's what happened. It's, it's a wild story. This was back in the day when the Jewish calendar was decided by eyewitness testimony about the new moon. As you probably know, the Jewish calendar is a lunar-based calendar, which means that the months begin with the, 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 the sighting, the appearance of the new moon after it has um, waned. When the, 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 when, when the moon reappears in the sky, that is the first of the month. The 15th day of the month is when the moon is a full moon, and then it continues to diminish, at least visually, until it essentially disappears from sight at the end of the month. So that's how the Jewish calendar is, um, flows. Back in the day, they didn't use an actual calendar. They used a visual sight system. Two witnesses would arrive at the high court in Jerusalem and say, we saw the new moon in the sky, and they would be interrogated and, and, and examined, and if their testimony was approved, the Sanhedrin, the court would say, it's Rosh Chodesh, first of the month. So this is what happened. One month, one day, two witnesses came, and they said to the court, we saw the moon. The court investigated, interrogated, um, examined the witnesses, kosher, Rosh Chodesh. Rabbi Yoshua was a bit of an astronomer, and he knew based on the astronomical calculations that it was impossible that they had seen the new moon. He said it's impossible. It's tomorrow, not today. You got it wrong. But the majority of the rabbis on the court said, we're accepting the testimony. Rabbi Yeshua protested. They pushed back. The head of the court, his name was Rabban Gamliel. This is another rabbi, a new rabbi. He was, again, this is before, this is decades before. This head of the Sanhedrin, head of the court's name was Rabbi Gam Rabban Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel stuck to the ruling of the majority, and this is what he said. This is what happened next. Let me show you what happened. This is a quote from the Talmud. Rabbi Gamliel sent a message to Rabbi Yeshua. I order you to appear before me while carrying your staff and your money on the day that will be Yom Kippur according to your reckoning. You see that? He told him, I know you, you're counting a different day of the month. I know, I know you don't believe that Rosh Chodesh was when it was. I know you think it's a day later. So on the day that you think is Yom Kippur, I order you to come to me with your walking stick and your wallet which would be in violation of the holiday, right? According to what you believe is the holiday, but come. Rabbi Akiva visited Rabbi Yeshua and found him in great anguish. 
Rabbi Kiva said, I can, prove, I can bring proof from the Torah that what Rabbi Gamliel has done is valid. The verse says, these are God's holidays, holy convocations that you shall proclaim in their appointed seasons. God is saying, whether the holidays are proclaimed at the proper time or not, I have no holidays other than those that you proclaim. In other words, God says in the Torah, you proclaim the holidays. So if the witnesses get it wrong, if, if they're accepted for whatever reason by the Sanhedrin, that becomes Rosh Chodesh, and God says, I agree. Even if it doesn't make sense, I agree. You proclaim, the court has to proclaim this. That's where Rabbi Kiva consoled Rabbi Yeshua, said, all right, you're not violating Yom Kippur if you follow Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Yeshua then went to Rabbi Dosa ben Harkinas, who said to him, if we call in question the decisions of the court of Rabbi Gamliel, we must call in question the decisions of every rabbinical court which has existed since the days of Moses. In other words, when a, when a court rules on something, when they vote and they rule, we have to, we have to concede, we have to accept it as halacha. Otherwise, you're going to split you're going to call into question every halacha in Judaism, every law, and you're going to split Judaism, and it's going to be a disaster. So what did he do? Rabbi Yeshua took his staff and his money and went to Yavne, to Rabbi Gamliel, on the day on which Yom Kippur fell according to his reckoning. Rabbi Gamliel rose, kissed Rabbi Yeshua on his head, and said to him, Come in peace, my teacher and my disciple. You are my teacher in wisdom. You are my disciple for having followed my instruction. That's the story. I, I, just to explain the story, the court called, let's say, let's just call it a Sunday. The court called Rosh Chodesh on the Sunday based on the visual testimony. Rab, Rabbi Yeshua said it can't be. It's got to be Monday. Well, the court disagreed with him and the calendar began, the month began on Tishrei. Right? Rosh Hashanah began on a Sunday. You count 10 days, and the community celebrated Yom Kippur. Rabbi Gamliel, sorry, Rabbi Yeshua said, it's not, it's not Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is the next day. So the day after Yom Kippur, when everyone was done with Yom Kippur, Rabbi Yeshua was planning on celebrating his own private Yom Kippur, which is why Rabbi Gamliel, the head of the court, said, you're not going to split Judaism. You're not going to split halacha. I want you, who think you're right, to come to me publicly on the day that, you, according to your calculations, Yom Kippur, come to me with your stick, and your money to publicly announce that you have conceded to the majority so we keep this, this unit together. And that's what he did. So what do we see in this incredible story? Rabbi Yeshua was in the same position that Rabbi Eliezer is in the, in the, in the oven situation. Rabbi Yeshua was on the minority side. But what did he do when he was on the minority? And he thought he was right. He knew he was right. What did he do? He ultimately conceded to the majority. And what about Rabbi Eliezer? Never conceded till the day he died. He remained excommunicated because he would not concede. He would not give in. He would not say, you're right. He could not say it. He would not say it. Rabbi Yeshua did. Rabbi Eliezer didn't. So you can imagine the subplot here. As Rabbi Eliezer is digging in his heels and saying, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Rabbi Yeshua is saying, you follow the majority. Can you imagine in Rabbi Yeshua's heart and mind, he's thinking about when he did the same thing. And he ultimately conceded. And you can imagine him saying, I did it. You need to do it now. I conceded to the majority. Now you must do so. But Rabbi Eliezer wouldn't. He would not do the same. He was simply unable to yield to the majority when he felt 
that they were wrong. Let me check in once again. Does the background story make sense? Yes? Background story, you got it? Okay. So here's the big idea. Opinions don't form in a vacuum. Opinions don't come from nowhere. Opinions and positions come based on who we are and our personalities. In other words, when two people debate the facts, the facts are the facts, but two people have a different interpretation of the facts. Why? Why can two people look at the same thing and say, I see two different things. I see we see different things. How is that possible? Because everybody's personality is different. Everyone, my, everyone's mind thinks differently. Everyone's, everyone has different emotions, different reactions, different impulses. We're all wired a little bit differently. And so when two sages debate points with each other, one methodology of study is trying to understand why they hold what they hold. Why does this rabbi say this and why does that rabbi say that? Why? I, we know what they say, but why? Why do they choose to see it this way? What is it about them that makes them see the case this way and the others see the case that way? What is it about their own personality? What's really cool is when you can look at a series of disputes. You look at a series of disputes between two individuals and say, wait a second, I can see a pattern. This, side, this guy, this rabbi, consistently rules in a certain way. And this rabbi consistently rules in different cases in a different way. And we can find patterns and, 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 and threads that run through the argument and we can learn about who they were and why they said what they said. So what I want to show you now, two more episodes, two more incidents of a debate between the same two rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, where they had a different perspective on things. And I want, to, I want you to play psychologist, spiritual psychologist. I want you to put the rabbis on the couch. I want you to analyze them based on the two stories that I'm going to share with you of their difference of opinions, different cases. I want you to analyze them. And when we're done with the stories, I'm going to ask you, tell me about Rabbi Eliezer's personality. Tell me about Rabbi Yeshua's personality. Let's do some analysis. Okay? Freud would be proud. Let's go. Did Freud ever study Gemara, Talmud? I don't know. But if he would, he would love this, this, uh, this little exercise that we're going to do now. All right? Here we go. Let's load up the text. This comes from the Midrash. The Midrash. Here we go. Achilles, the proselyte, visited Rabbi Eliezer and asked him. The Torah says God loves the proselyte and gives him bread and clothing. If God loves the proselyte, why does he give him no more than the most basic necessities? Right, it says, the Torah says, God loves the proselyte and gives him bread and clothing. Bread and clothing? I was expecting something a little bit more, uh, I don't know, opulent. If God loves the proselyte, hook him up with something nice, a nice car, right, a yacht, right, a pool, something. Give me something. Bread and clothing, that's basics. Rebbe Ezer says, you regard this gift as trivial? Respond to Rebbe Ezer. 
That which our patriarch Jacob had to plead for, bread to eat and a garment to wear, God readily provides to the proselyte. Bread and clothing is to be snubbed at. What? Bread and clothing is a great blessing. Stop complaining. No kvetching, Akilas. That's Rabbi, that's Rabbi Eliezer. Akilas then visited, you guessed it, Rabbi Yeshua, who offered him words of comfort. He said to him like this, Bread is a metaphor for Torah. As it says, come, partake of my bread. Clothing is a reference to the mantle of, Torah, of the Torah scholar. Right? So what does it mean that God loves the proselyte and gives him bread and clothing? Bread means Torah. And clothing means scholarship. It means that God loves you. You're going to become a great scholar, a Talmud Chacham, a brilliant sage. The sages observed were not for Rabbi Yeshua's patience and sensitivity. Akilas, who had converted to Judaism, would have reverted to paganism. You see that? He had converted to Judaism. He goes to one rabbi and says, Rabbi, God's only given me this. And the rabbi says, you're lucky that God gives you that. He goes to another rabbi and the other rabbi says, no, bread is a euphemism. Clothing is a euphemism. God loves you and will bless you, will give you the greatest gifts. You're going to become the greatest scholar. You're going to be great and amazing. Let's put them on the couch. Tell me about, unmute, let's go open mic. Tell me about the personality of Rabbi Eliezer. How do you cons- Big ego. Maybe, okay, ego, possibly, okay, what else? Well, okay, good, what else? What else do you get from his personality? What else? Austere. Austere, good, he's happy with bread and clothing, good, like I mentioned before, good. What else? What else about his personality? He's proud of his austerity. He's proud of it, good, good, what else? This reminds me of uh, Hillel and Shemai when the they went to Shemai slammed the door in his face and said, get out of here. And Hillel said, stand on one foot, go learn versus commentary. Yes. Love your fellows yourself. Right. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. Exactly. He was more interested in the school of Hillel. Good, 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 good. Hold on. We're going to make that connection in a second. Excellent. So Rabbi Eliezer is harsher. Rabbi Eliezer chastises the guy. Why are you asking questions? Why are you, why are you complaining? You're getting a blessing. Enjoy it. Rabbi Yeshua says, I love you. God loves you. Come on, let's fabreng. Now let's take a look at one more story. One more story, one more story. This is interesting. Rabbi Eliezer once sat and lectured the entire day of a holiday on the laws of the holiday. Imagine it's the day of Sukkot. The rabbi gets up and doesn't stop speaking. Meanwhile, you have guests coming over for lunch. You're, 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 the the rabbitson is making uh, lunch for everybody, setting the table, and, and the rabbi is darshaning, giving a drasha, giving a lecture, and it's going on and on. So what happens? The Talmud says, a group of students left the lecture hall to enjoy their holiday meal. Whereupon Rabbi Eliezer said, those people must have barrels of wine at home. Thus they departed. Huh? They're probably going to drink wine. When a second group left, he said those of kegs of wine. When a third group left, he said those of jugs. When a fourth group left, he said those of flasks. When a fifth group left, he said those of cups. A sixth group began to leave, leaving the lecture hall almost empty. Rabbi Eliezer, disturbed by this group's insensitivity to the disgrace they were causing, said, these are accursed people. Rabbi Eliezer gazed upon the remaining students and their faces began to, to pale for fear that he was upset at them too. Rabbi Eliezer said to them, no. 
My sons, my criticism was not directed to you who are still here, but at those who have left, for they forsake the study of Torah that brings eternal life and engage in temporal, ephemeral life. In other words, they're going home to their meals, seriously, to their meals, to their sushi, to their steaks, what to their wine. Come on, we have Torah here, baby. The Talmud says, why was Rebbe Leezer critical of, the, of all of those who left in order to enjoy their holiday meal? After all, it's mandatory to rejoice in a holiday. Like, you're supposed to go enjoy a meal. What was the criticism? No. Nope. Rebbe Leezer, however, is of the opinion that rejoicing on a holiday is optional. For it is taught, Rebbe Leezer says, a person has no absolute obligation on a holiday. He may choose to eat and drink, or he may sit and study Torah. Rebbe Yeshua says, divide the day. Devote half of it to God and half of it to yourselves, eating and drinking. So we have an opinion about how to do two opinions about how to celebrate a holiday between the same two rabbis. Rabbi Eliezer says, ideally, study and pray. What, you're going to have uh, sushi in the sukkah, pizza in the hut? What are you doing? What are you talking about? What is this business? Come on. Torah study, baby. That's the real thing. Sorry, Coca-Cola. Torah is the real thing. That's it. That's Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Shua says, no, half chatzil Hashem, chatzil half to Hashem, half to you. Learn, go to Shoal, go home and eat. It's a mitzvah to eat, he says. Put him on the couch, baby. Put him on the couch. Put him on the couch. Who's Rabbi, who's Rabbi Eliezer? What kind of guy is he? Yeah, help me out, guys. Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. He's starved. He's He's old school, baby. He's old school. Fire and brimstone. He's like, he's, he's sorry. He's a zealot. He's a zealot. He's strong, man. He's like, guys, no fooling around. You leave the lecture. Yeah. A shikir. He calls, he calls you out. You're probably drinking wine, probably going to the bar. That's like, he's like, he's a strong, opinionated, strong. He's like sharp and opinionated all about perfection and truth and God and yeah, the Torah way. And, and what about Rabbi Yeshua? He understands people. You can't keep him in shul all day. Go home and eat a meal. It's not Yom Kippur, right? A little for God, a little for you, right? One for you, one for me, that's it. Rabbi Yeshua is more of a people's person. He gets it. Rabbi Yezer, intense. Intensity and truth. And Rabbi Yeshua is tolerance and compromise. Are you with me on this? I'm going to say those, those words again. Rebbe Leezer is all about intensity and truth. This is the right way. This is how it has to be perfectly true. And you get bread and, and clothing and that's it. And you have to be in shul all day and listen to a drasha, listen to a lecture on the holiday. That's it. He, he's all or nothing. All or nothing. It's like a matching campaign, right? All or nothing, baby. That's it. Right? To the moon. And what about Rabbi Yeshua? Rabbi Yeshua says, come on. Hey, people are people. Tolerance, compromise. You're not dealing with angels. People have to go home. They want to spend time with their families. They want to eat something. They want to enjoy themselves. Uh, people need to feel good about their decisions. Akilas, I love you. You'll become a scholar. You're amazing. He's more about the understanding how people operate. You with me? One guy's all about truth and one guy's all about... Peace, tolerance, compromise. You know what we call this in Kabbalah? You know the terms. I'm not going to tell you anything new tonight. Chesed and Gvura. Chesed is love and kindness. Gvura is 
strict severity. So who was who? Rabbi Yeshua, the second guy. Rabbi Yeshua was chesed. All about the love and tolerance and understanding and compromise. Rabbi Eliezer, truth. Sorry, gvura, severity, strictness. Strict. Different people. You could have parents, same kids, two different types. One parent is do whatever you want. And the other parent's like, we got the rules. Two different personalities, right? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it can be complicated if you have this dynamic, the dual dynamic, chesed and gvura. Some parents believe, you know, what's best for the kid is to allow them to explore. Allow them to, you know, to, to go free and to explore and to make mistakes and they'll figure it out. Another parent says, no, we have to make rules and be firm and be rigid and you got to be here and not there. And who's right, who's wrong? Different personalities, different souls. Why do I say souls? Because the soul has chesed and gvura. So when the soul came from above, it was injected with a little more chesed, a little more gvura. Every soul is a different thing. Every soul, right, as it hurdles through the worlds, the spiritual worlds, it comes down here, it's like a bullet. The ballistics, some have this way, that way. Some have a little more chesed, some a little more gvura. That's a very violent example, my apologies. It's like music, right? Or it's like colors. Go into Photoshop, whatever. You tweak the red, you tweak the yellow, you change the color. You, 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 you amplify one hue over the other. It's a different color. Some people have more chesed, more loving, more accepting, more tolerant, more understanding, compromising. That's their personality. Some people more gvura, exacting, strict, absolute, truth. No compromise. Who's right, who's wrong? Different personalities. So who mentioned before Hill and Shammai? Somebody mentioned before Hill and Shammai. Yeah. Richard, you get an extra drush on the holiday, an extra sermon for you. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm channeling my inner rebeliezer. So here's the deal. Hillel was famously chesed. Tolerant, loving, right? The fellow wants to convert. Akilas are already converted. But the story with, with Hillel and Shammai was the fellow was thinking about converting. Rabbi, teach me the whole Torah on one foot. So let's talk about Shammai. He went to Shammai. Shammai was kvura. Shammai says, get out of here. How dare you? Why, Ayata? And he grabbed a ruler. I don't know what this is. He grabbed a ruler. I'm going to hit you. Get out of here. What are you talking about? One foot. You're making a mockery of Torah. Torah is truth. Yeah, hardcore, hardcore, old school, fire brimstone. Hill said, yeah, don't do to others what you don't, what you don't want done to yourself. That's the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. But you might want to learn the commentary. Love, love, love. Yeah, love. So, Hill and Shammai lived, let me explain this. The two rabbis that we're talking about today, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, we know who their teacher is. I've said it like six times today. Their teacher was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the guy who smuggled himself out of Jerusalem in a coffin, right? Who was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's teacher? Hillel! Hillel was his teacher! Hillel! And yet, even though when Hillel, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and then the students, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Eliezer was a throwback not to his teacher's teacher, but to his teacher's Teacher's colleague. He was a throwback to Shammai, Gvura. How do I know this? Don't take my word for it. Don't take, right? Don't take my word for it. Take a look at the Talmud. Rabbi Eliezer was a follower of Shammai. You can't make that up, nor did I make that up. That's a quote from Talmud Tract Enida. Rabbi Eliezer was a follower of Shammai. What does that mean? 
What does that mean? He, uh, li he liked his uh, Twitter feed. Hey, he's a follower of Shammai. What does that mean? He followed him on, uh, on, on, uh, on Facebook. No, he followed in the energy, the spirit, the modality of Shammai. Shammai was Gvura, truth, absolute, disciplinarian. Rabbi Eliezer, although his teacher's teacher was Hillel, he was in the model. He was in the modality of Shammai. What we've done, and I hope you appreciate what we've done tonight so far. We're not done yet. <laughs> not even close. But I hope you appreciate what we've done. We started off about an oven. Then we moved to understanding. The core is that Rabbi Yeshua was able in his lifetime to concede to the majority of Lezer couldn't. We said, let's try to track down who they were inside before we understand how it manifested itself. We brought other disputes and we've come to this conclusion that the patterns indicate, and the Talmud clearly says, that Rabbi Yezer was a disciplinarian. Gvura was about truth and perfection. Rabbi Yeshua is more understanding, compromise, right? Understanding, love, compromise, understanding, tolerance. Now, we can understand what happened with the oven. Now we can understand what happened with the oven. What did the oven look like? Different pieces of clay separated by sand. Different pieces of clay separated by sand. Not a unibody construction. Different pieces, broken pieces, put together. Rabbi Eliezer looks at that oven and says, where's the integrity here? Where's the integrity here? There's no integrity, it's broken. It's not an oven. I know what an oven is, it's not an oven. Rabbi Yeshua says, take it easy. It functions as an oven. Yeah, on the outside it looks like an oven. It's, it's baking things. It's an oven. Rabbi Eliezer says, but look inside. It's broken inside. What kind of oven is broken? It's not an oven. Rabbi Yeshua says, may not be a perfect oven, but it's an oven. It's good enough. Rabbi Eliezer says, good enough is not good enough in my book. It's good enough. Where's the integrity? Where's the perfection? Were they talking about ovens or human beings? Were they talking about ovens or you and I? What is the standard of a human being? Perfection? Some people are very harsh on themselves. If they're not perfect, it hurts them. If others aren't perfect, they're not happy. Perfectionists. Right? A bit intolerant. It's got to be perfect or else it's no good. Disaster if it's not perfect. <sighs> when you look at a person and you see their flaws, yeah? I see layers of clay, but I see all this sand in between. I see all this sand, the schmutz. You know what schmutz is? Schmutz means uh, dirt, debris. I see, I see something nice, but I see all the sand in between. 
All the shmutz, they do good things from time to time, but in between, they're involved in all sorts of activities. What kind of oven is that? That's not a whole vessel, it's a broken vessel. Right? That's not a whole vessel, it's a broken vessel. That's what Rabbi Eliezer says. A person who's not perfect, nishkein mensch, is not a mensch. If you're not perfect, you're not a mensch. You're not an oven, right? You're not, it's not, it's, you're not a, it's not a vessel. Rabbi Yeshua says, slow down, slow down, slow down. Who is perfect? Who's perfect? Who's perfect here? You tell me just because there's some sand in between. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a vessel anymore. It's not an oven anymore. It's not a mensch. You have to be understanding and tolerant. And sometimes you have to understand that not everyone is perfect. Who's going to live up to that perfect standard? And you know what? Sometimes people need affirmation. Sometimes people need a hug. Sometimes people need encouragement. Sometimes people need to go home to their families. Sometimes people need the class to end and to go eat something. And you demand perfection. Perfection is not practical. And if you're not perfect, you're still, you could still be a good person without being perfect. You could still be an oven without being perfect. This was the debate that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago. About what is the standard by which we are measured. Rabbi Eliezer said the standard by which we are measured is a perfect standard. And if we're not perfect... It's a problem. Tzaddik or the highway? And Rabbi Yeshua said, life is not so simple. It's not, it's not so black and white. It's not so black and white. There's a lot of gray in between. And everyone has their virtues. And everyone has their vices. You want only perfection to be allowed in the room? Only perfect tzaddikim allowed to apply for this job called life? That's it? If I'm not perfect, I'm out. I'm not an oven. I'm not complete. I'm not a vessel. Doesn't mean I celebrate. I celebrate imperfection, but it also means I understand that imperfection is part and parcel of the human condition. Can I love, as Jay said, can I love the other? Or do I say, if you're not perfect, you're out. That's it. I'm not talking to you anymore. You don't agree with me on all things. You have flaws. You know what we call this today? Canceled. Rabbi Eliezer was canceling people. He was canceling ovens. Oh, you got some sand. You got some schmutz. Canceled. You're not an oven. You're not an oven. Get out of here. That's it. You're not an oven anymore. You're not a vessel. You're broken. You're flawed. Right? That's it. We're not talking about you anymore. It's intolerance. It's not practical. Who can stand on the mountain? Who can climb the mountain and say, look at me, I'm perfect? Who can do that? Who? Who can say that I have no sin? No skeletons in the closet. No, nothing under the rug. Who can say that? To hold someone to a perfect standard, Rabbi Shua says, is wrong and it's reckless and it's not my way. Love and tolerance. Chesed says, how can, you, how, can you dis how can you cancel someone just because you discovered that under the veneer there's some sand in between the layers? Just because they're not as perfect as they might try to appear on the outside. So you're going to cancel them? That's not right.
That was the debate. It was a big deal. It's not about an oven. It's about a perspective on life. It's about relationships. It's about ourselves. How hard are we on ourselves? How hard are we on our loved ones? How critical are we of our neighbors? How intolerant are we of others that disagree with us? How quickly are we to cancel others that might have done something wrong? These are all questions we need to think about. Are we in the modality of Rebel Yazer, perfection or the highway, or are we like Rabbi Yeshua, a little bit more tolerant? Well, we know what the majority ruled like, yeah? Who? The majority of sages were aligned with not Rebbe Eliezer, with Rabbi Yeshua. The majority of sages said, life cannot be lived in this perfect standard. It's not sustainable. Rabbi Eliezer, you're so perfectly wise and brilliant and truthful and, and fierce. It's ama- it, you amaze us. Rabbi, you amaze us. You have access to miracles and heavenly voices. Rabbi Eliezer, you're incredible, but you're not practical. It's not, it's not real life. Life can't be lived in that perfection. So they voted. And of course, the majority aligned with Rabbi Yeshua, the guy who understood people. Got there, no one's perfect. I get it, right? That's most people aligned with that honest appraisal of the human condition. And of ovens, of course, because we're talking about ovens, right? So Rabbi Lazar said, I'm not, I'm not conceding to this. I'm not conceding. But the Torah says, you have to follow the majority. Obviously, obviously, Rabbi Lazar has a different definition of what majority means. Right? Think about it. Unmute yourself. Un- un- this open question. Un- un- start unmuting. How do we typically define majority? Right? How do we define majority? What's the majority? It's not, it's not, of what? Of votes, of individuals. Does everyone get an equal vote? Depends. (laughs) Rabbi Yeshua said, we have the majority. We voted. Most scholars agree with me. Rabbi Ezra says, what kind of? Consensus. Say consensus. Consensus, right. But consensus of bodies? Rabbi Ezra says, you're taking the majority of the quantity. What about the quality? I have the majority quality of Torah scholarship. In other words, the majority opinion is mine. I have the greatest scholarship. So what do you mean? You have, you know, a, a, a thousand scholars that don't understand that on my level agreeing with each other. Who cares? How is that the majority? How, it's a lower level scholarship. How is that the majority? Higher level... Right? I'm the one. By the way, this was not a new debate. Hillel and Shammai, the the, the academies of Hillel and Shammai also debated this. You might be surprised to learn this. You might be surprised to learn this. Here we go. The Talmud says the schools of Shammai and Hillel argued for three years. One said the halacha follows our opinion. One said the halacha follows our opinion. The argument was not regarding any issue of contention in a specific halachic area. Rather, they disagreed on a larger issue. How is a majority computed? What defines majority? The school of Hillel claimed that Allah follows our opinion because we are the majority. The school of Shammai countered the students of our school are sharper and possess greater analytical skill. We do not reckon 
with a quantitative majority for we consider, for we constitute the qualitative majority. In other words, take the, the, the number of scholars on our level. We got most of those guys. We got most of top tier talent in academia. So what do you mean you got the majority? You got more bodies in your study hall. We got higher level caliber scholars, sharper and greater analytical skill. Similarly, Rabbi Eliezer, also a disciple of Shammai, as we said before, did not submit to the majority opinion. Why? Because he considered himself one man to be the majority. He was a one-man majority in his own perception. Because again, when you look at things from an absolutist perspective, right? He wasn't wrong. He was actually the greatest scholar, the greatest scholar. But he looked at it from an absolute perspective. If I'm the greatest scholar, then I have to be right, then I have to be the majority, then everyone has to agree with me. And the truth is, life is not lived on that level. He was so... so he, would never be, he would never be on the Sanhedrin. I mean, he... Right, so there was... So he was part of it, but they, they, they excommunicated him from the academy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He couldn't... He was... Yeah, he was... He was, he was ultimately thrown out. So... Yeah. No, I'm just saying a couple things that comes to my mind. It would be like uh, if uh, five, uh, five professors from the University of Colorado agreed on something... And one from Harvard agreed on the other thing. Most of America would say the Harvard guy has it. Correct. I don't believe in because I wouldn't use it in Colorado, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, thank you for sharing that. that. That's a good. That's a good analogy. That's a good analogy, right? So five. Just, just another quick, two quick things, real quickly. That uh, Rabbi Eliezer uh, was a, was a Shammai person, even though his teacher was uh, Hillel. But Hillel conceded the majority should live by me, Hillel, but I myself, Hillel, live by Shammai. Do you remember that? Yeah. So maybe maybe he's basically with my teacher is Hillel, but yet he concedes that I, Hillel, am going to live by Shammai, and therefore maybe Eliezer said, well, I'll do the same. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the thing is that Rabbi Eliezer's opinion was about himself that he shouldn't be conceding to anyone. Right. Yeah, that was, that was his angle. Anyway, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want to kind of wrap up, and then we can take more questions, but we're right at the time. So let me, let me, let me conclude this, this idea and, and, and hopefully wrap it up with a nice bow. In the ultimate, in the final analysis, what was going on, what was at stake in this argument, why it became such a big deal, as Professor Handelman writes, you know, wh why, why did this blow up to such a big deal? Because it touched on the very nature of their characters and the very nature of Torah scholarship and the very nature of, of expectations of ourselves, others, and what God expects of us. One approach is the hardline approach. It's the old school approach. It's perfection or, or bust. It's you got to be perfect or else you're out. It's if you don't toe the line, then we have no room for you. It's this intolerance. It's this like, absolutist approach. And that was Rebbe Leezer's approach, right? If it's a broken oven, if it's an oven that's comprised of pieces separated by sand, it's not an oven. If you have schmutz, if you have dirt, if you have, you know, imperfections, blemishes, you're out, you're gone, you're nothing. That's it, out of the conversation. That was Rebbe Leezer's approach. And so when the majority said, we disagree, he said, of course you disagree. Of course you guys disagree. You guys are the, you know, the feeble mind. The, I'm, I'm, I don't mean he was nasty. I'm saying, hey, of course you agree if you disagree with me. Because you guys are wrong. Of course you disagree. Because you, you don't get it. You don't see that perfection. Of course you're wrong. But Torah, but Torah is not lived like that. That's not the majority. The majority is understanding and, and, and the idea of tolerance and, and recognizing that human beings are not perfect. 
We live in an imperfect world. And ultimately, all the heavenly voices from today to tomorrow don't sway what the halacha is, what the verdict is. The verdict is, Rabbi Yeshua and his colleagues were right. The oven is still an oven. It may not be the most beautiful oven. It may not be the perfect oven. It may not be the, you know, the thousand dollar oven, uh, whatever. It may not be the most expensive oven. Thousand is actually not expensive. But it is still an oven. And it needs to be respected. And it needs to be, you know, the oven's the oven. And so for us in our lives, what's the message? The message is that we should always seek to adopt a modality of chesed over gvura. We need gvura in our lives. We need some discipline. We need truth and adherence to, you know, we have to strive for, you know, perfection. But let's not beat ourselves up if we're not there yet. Let's not beat up each other if they're not there yet. When we notice the flaws of someone else, let us quickly remember that we too are not perfect and we're okay. We're enough in. It's not so terrible. Who can live with Rabbi Eliezer's standard? It's not sustainable. The rabbi said, you have to concede to reality of the human condition. If you cannot concede, then we can't, we can't operate within this. You can't, we can't operate in this, uh, in this space together. The, the walls leaned. Like the mezuzah, right? We tilt the mezuzah. It's not up, it's not down, it's a little bit leaning. The walls of the academy leaned. <clears throat> it's not purely chesed, not purely gvura, it's kind of in the middle. But if you have to, because we need both. You need to love, you need, you need some boundaries also, you need some discipline, some truth. But if you have to err on one side or the other, let's go chesed. Let's be more understanding. If you see somebody that's asking for something and you're not sure you know, whether or not they deserve it, let's be a little bit more generous than more strict. If you um, encounter someone else uh, you know, making a mistake, let's be a bit more loving than judgmental. In parenting, let's love, let's give more hugs than, than criticisms. And with self-assessment, let's be nicer to ourselves than harsher. We need to have standards. We need to strive to better ourselves, obviously. We need, we need some gvura, right? We need to, like... But love. Love is what must rule the day. That was the majority opinion. In the great Achnai Oven debate, I want to thank you all for joining me tonight. I hope this made sense. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you gained from it. I hope you learned uh, perspective. Perspective on life itself from this great debate. Before I open up the mic for a few minutes, because I, I have to run actually to another class, but before I open up the mic, um, I want to just share with you what next week's topic is. It's called A Ticket to Paradise, Exceeding Limitations and Pursuing Growth. We'll learn about the powerful story of Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan, one of the famed 10 martyrs who lost their lives at the hands of the Roman emperor. We'll also discuss the rates the payment rates at an ancient rent-a-donkey, and learn why the greatest sages expressed uncertainty on their deathbeds. Don't miss our spectacular grand finale next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, Thursday night, 8 p.m. Excuse me, 8 p.m. All right, well, let's open up the mic for, let's say, three minutes, and then I got to cut it. All right, jump in. Who's got something? Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, the Academy ended up a bit... Um, unyielding towards the rabbi that they excommunicated. So they became just as unyielding as well. 
towards him? Well, they just couldn't have... So the question is, if you try to create a space where tolerance is the where tolerance is is rules the day and thus you try to distance the voice of intolerance does that make you intolerant in the process that's your question that's a triple mirror situation where i don't know if that ever has an answer right under the guise of tolerance do you tolerate the one who's intolerant that's like a very meta question i'm not qualified to, to weigh in on that the rabbis at the time felt like him being in a position of leadership and also splintering actual halacha would be too devastating. And on the ground, the practical reason, without getting into our explanation tonight, the deeper explanation, the practical reason is you couldn't have, at that point, they couldn't afford to have two Judaisms. Right after the temple was destroyed, the Judaism was on very, very, um, you know, very unstable footing. You know, there's no temple, disruption, you know, exile, dispersion, diaspora, all that stuff. You could not now have two versions of Judaism. It would be, it would be done. It would be dead in the water. So they had to, like, really be strong about solidifying. We have one narrative. There's one halacha. We're going to have to agree. Even if we disagree, we'll have to agree to disagree. But we can't keep on fighting and splinter off and, and observe different holidays and observe different laws and different rules. And some people do eat and some people don't eat it. At that stage, it would be devastating. I know today we have different things, but back then it would have it would have uh, just destroyed Judaism. So on a simple level, that's the answer. He's still Jewish, though. The, the Rabbi Eliezer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And on his yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 I, I think I have to look back at the sources. Maybe on his deathbed, they they removed it, whatever it was. But Rabbi Eliezer is still is still a great scholar. It's not like we look at him like oh, Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer was still. Still uh, top, top of his class. Um, all right. Who had a question or a comment? Jump in. I have a, I have a quick comment. Uh, yes. That, uh, maybe Rabbi Eliezer was so staunch in his opinion, so digging his heels so much, because he had the heavenly voice of his thing, which he did not ask for. He just came. Yeah. Well, that's tonight's class. He knew he was right. So what happens when you know you're right and the other guy's wrong? Are you able to concede to the imperfection of someone else's way of understanding it? That's exactly tonight's, that's my whole point. That's the whole point of the class, right? When you know you're right, can you tolerate someone who you know is wrong? That's, that's the whole point of the class. Hold on one second. I could tolerate you if you might be right, but I know you're wrong. I can't tolerate you. That's the whole point of tonight's class. Can you still tolerate them when you think they're wrong? That's what Rabbi Lazar, that's what Rabbi Lazar seemingly couldn't do. Rabbi Yeshua said, we know sometimes it's wrong. We still have to tolerate and accept. It's not perfect. That's how it is. But he couldn't, he couldn't, Rabbi Lazar couldn't do that. All right. I have one quick yes. question. Did Rabbi Yeshua tell him, remind him of the, of the previous, um, where, he, where he himself conceded? I don't, I don't, it's not indicating the narrative that he told him, hey, I was on, I was on, I was in your remember, position. Remember when? Yeah, I was in your position. Remember that I like put my tail between my legs and I, I conceded. I, um, the day that I thought was Yom Kippur, I came with my charge card and, you know, my tap to pay and I bought a Coke. Do you remember that? Yeah. He doesn't say that. I don't think he said that. But it's clear that in his, in his experience, he had done exactly that. Rabbi Eliezer was not able to do it. wasn't his personality. He wasn't able to was, overcome that. You know, I was crying when, when, when you were telling the story because it, hurt, it hurts to hear this. Yeah. 
It's a painful story. It's a painful story. It's, and Rabbi Eliezer ben, ben, ben Hirkinus was not just, it wasn't just, you know, another scholar. He was the top scholar. Anyway, it's because of that, because he was so... Anyway, so that's another lesson. As, as I close this out tonight, it's another lesson. Sometimes we're too good for our own, for our own uh, benefit or whatever the phrase is. It's like... We're too smart, you know, we're too, too, smart, too, too smart, smart for, for our own good. Exactly, too, too smart for our own good. Anyway, Al Kapanim, as it stands, let's, uh, let's wish each other Shabbat Shalom. I'll, I'll, I look forward to seeing you guys next week. And a quick announcement. Join, yeah, thank you, thank you. Glad you enjoyed it. Join me, join us Monday night for Hot Topics in person at, at Intown Jewish Academy, a class that explores modern dilemmas through Jewish thought. Join me online on Zoom Tuesday night for Judge Ruchi Fryer, who is an incredible trailblazer in her community and uh, throughout Jewry, throughout uh, the Jewish world. She's a judge, and she opened up an all-women all EMT ambulance service, Hatzalah, in Brooklyn. Uh, faced a lot of fierce pushback from the patriarchy on that. She has broken through glass ceilings. She's a criminal uh, criminal judge, criminal court judge in New York City, and she'll be speaking live and exclusive for us on Zoom next Tuesday, 8 p.m. Join us. Sign up now in townjewishacademy.org. You don't want to miss it. All right. Laila Tov. Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. Thanks for being here tonight.